Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Ailey Fan. Ailey is the Managing Director at StudyLinks International, a company which acts as an educational guardian to international students studying in the UK. Um, Ailey, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ailey. It's uh, wonderful having you on the airwaves alongside us. Now, um, COVID-19, of course, has been the significant challenge for leaders, which has dominated the headlines throughout 2020. So I feel it's appropriate that we start from that angle. Um, for yourselves, of course, working as an international guardian organisation to those international students that come over to the UK, considering the impact of the pandemic on study and coming over and travel, to what extent has it affected things for you? I can imagine it's done so tremendously. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in every industry. Um, but yeah, for us, um, the effects have been, well, we we offer like four different areas of our business, two of which have absolutely been decimated since January um, 2020. You know, things like short-term groups, you know, school exchanges that they, they straight away were, you know, not going to happen. Um, so then we're left with the other part of the business, which is guardianship and looking after the students who are in the UK. Um, and that hasn't changed. You know, our, our main role is to make sure students are safe, that they're successful in their studies. And that had to continue whether there was COVID or no COVID. Um, it just meant that the support that we were offering needed to adapt um, to make sure that students felt safe and that they were actually able to progress in in spite of COVID. And with regards to how you've had to adapt to meet the challenges of this new reality, what is it that you've had to do to sort of try and pivot as a response? Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, the thing for us is about that willingness, is that attitude to, to be willing to, to adapt, um, mm. you know, whatever, come what may, um, if you know what your mission is, which, as I said, for us is just to make sure that they're okay, then whatever situation you face, you're going to find a solution. It's about being optimistic and um, and knowing that you, you've got to deliver and therefore you will. Um, mm. So this for us is, you know, we have emergencies all the time for students in very, you know, in very different ways. Um, and this is just, another emergency that happens to affect all of them. So mm. I feel that we're fortunate actually that, you know, the team that we've got um, already had that, the attitude to cope with um, what's needed, so to speak. You do, they do say, don't they, that you learn more about yourself in a time of adversity than when things are going well. And um, it seems apparent that everybody at StudyLinks has been really stepping up to the plate to try and safeguard that student community during this time. And that's been the first priority for you. Now, um, thinking about um, this just a little bit more widely and moving maybe away from the doom and gloom side of COVID ever so slightly, we are on the programme 
of late trying to find some silver lining in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us throughout this year. So thinking about what you have maybe learned from this experience of crisis management, are there any positives that you can actually take from this whole ordeal? Definitely. Do you know what? Um, I've been saying this to friends, family, whoever are listening really, but there are so many positives from it. in terms of business, bringing it back to that is um, we, as a team, have really come together. We're, we're collaborating more than ever before, um, and 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 we are we are adapt. Well, it comes back to that adapting. We are changing things quickly, um, at, you know, at a rate of knots, really. So it's it's really exciting. So you know, the work that we have um, that there is to do. We are just making sure that we are offering an enhanced service. We, we, as a team, we're coming together more, and yeah, it's. I, 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 I truly feel that we'll come out of this stronger, and the service that we can deliver will be stronger because, um, as you say, you, you really, I don't know what's the what's the phrase. Mm. I suppose, really, it's just about. I know that we've got the right team and. Mm. That is helpful in itself, yeah. Yes, it's about having good and positive people around you, isn't it? And um, having a positive culture to sort of see out a crisis. Um, There's a great quote from Nelson Mandela, actually, and he once said, you should surround yourself with people who are better than you. So if we think about especially younger generations of entrepreneurs that could well be listening to this and are perhaps looking at the economic landscape and have maybe been considering starting their own businesses, I suppose that thinking about the people that you recruit and the team you put together around you and instilling a positive culture, those are some of the key things that you have to sort of get in, get ingrained early as a leader, don't you? Um, and if you were perhaps to, based upon your own experience, maybe give some advice to some of those youngsters that could well be tuning into this and are maybe very downhearted by what they've seen in terms of what COVID has done to the economy and uh, what it's done to their employment prospects, mm-hmm. what would you sort of say to them to really encourage them to pick up their heads and start on the road to success, as it were? Yeah, um, you know, that's so relevant because that's, you know, fundamental to the work that we're doing, um, mm. and it's 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 fairly easy for me to answer. I would say is because it's about remaining optimistic. You know, there there will be um, you know an end to this, uh, whatever that looks like, um, and and really look at you know use this time wisely. Um, you know, if if there aren't opportunities right now for jobs and things like that, well, okay, how can you improve yourself? to make sure that when the job market improves that, you know, you're at the top of the table kind of thing to be chosen. And, you know, invest that time in yourself, believe in yourself. And um, I know it's commonly used, you know, about being authentic. But really, I believe that, um, you know, if you'd have asked me a few years ago about what does leadership mean and then to what I believe now, it's, you know, it's drastically changed, actually. And, and I think that would be my advice to students is be passionate about what you want to be passionate about and and you know and 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 go and find something that fits you rather than trying to mold yourself into something that you're not you'll get so much more enjoyment out of things um yeah that's that's my answer to that now during this time as well um what we found leaders are having to do is of course step up to the plate within their organizations and within their businesses and be beacons of motivation 
reassurance as well amid the uncertainty and also inspiration as well now when you are the person at the top of the tree who is running an organization or running a business when you do need a little bit of inspiration and direction of your own during a time like this when there's nobody above you to refer to as such where is it that you tend to look to to try and find that um yeah i believe i'm really fortunate that i am surrounded by um people that do inspire me you know i've got um close friends family um, mm. peers colleagues you know i i, I do um you know I, I love to collaborate with within my team but also outside you know people have got so much to offer in terms of advice in terms of experience um, and and it's there, you know, if you're just willing to ask for help and a bit of support, then people are so willing to give it. And likewise, in return, you know, we can all help one another. And I think, yeah, my, that, that motivation for me just comes from knowing that whatever industry we're in, um, generally you're going through the same problems and you can talk about them and, you know, the detail might be different, but generally, you know, the process stuff, I think there are a couple of important things to take away from that, not just, of course, the fact that the message in itself is inspiring, but also some of the people that you mentioned there. It just goes to show that some of the most influential people out there can often be those everyday leaders, family members, people within our communities, friends, colleagues. And there's a lot to be said for that. Um, People who are leaders or in leadership roles do not have to necessarily be people who put themselves on pedestals and are in the public eye and I think maybe culturally as a country in the UK maybe we are too quick to associate leadership with politics or with celebrity or with sports like being sort of the centre of attention as it were being in the public eye as I've already said and that isn't always the reality of leadership is it? Absolutely yeah for me it's very much you know, I, I take it from those closest to me, people who I can see, you know, they're not just talking the talk, but they're living it. Um, mm. And, and that, that really is inspiring to me. Now, um, I am conscious um, of the fact that our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. But just before we do wrap things up, Ailey, um, I do really want to talk about what the future does hold, because we know that with the COVID-19 situation ongoing, we have to negotiate quite a difficult winter before we can even think about uh, the recovery, whatever shape or form that is eventually going to take. We may also have a vaccine by the springtime. We might not. There's still a great variable there. But in an ideal world... Where is it that you really want Study Links International to be within a year's time, and what is it you're really hoping to have achieved by that point? Yeah, as you say, there are so many unknowns, um, and our business, you know, we're beholden really to international travel and confidence um, in traveling um, and, and living overseas. Um, so I think the key for me is about um, making a difference in the areas that I can control, which is focusing on delivering the best service, you know, and so in 12 months' time, um, I would hope that all this effort and the extra investment that we're doing right now, in, in spite of the downturn, you know, we're actually spending more than ever before to, you know, to grasp this time. It's not often you get time to really evaluate things and, and improve, so I'm really, really excited and looking forward to, in 12 months, you know, things will, you know, processes will be better, the team. Um, you know, we'll be, you know, all of us will be much more upskilled, and it's just going to be so exciting. Yeah. 
And I do certainly wish you all the luck in the world in making that possible, Ailey, yeah, because it is a time to think that, that there are opportunities out there and we do need a bit of positivity amid the uncertainty because it is so, so infectious and I think it's something we all need a dose of at the moment. And I do hope that there will be some positive news to share um, in the uh, the next few months. And I really, really um, would like, actually, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today, to welcome you back onto the programme at some point in this next year just to see how some of those things are coming along. Thank you. I would really appreciate that and look forward to it. Uh, I would certainly welcome that as well, Ailey. And let us hope that it is uh, certainly um, a time where we can talk about some of the positive things that have happened in the time between our discussions. Um, For now, um, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air with us. And um, do, most importantly, take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on in the world as well. And that goes for everybody associated with StudyLinks. Thank you so much. Take care. I'd also like to reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning into the programme this afternoon. Um, Do please look after yourself, stay well and do be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Now, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He's been a member of the Upper House of Parliament since August 2015 and I do hope that all of you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same 
products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in, 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed 
further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.